Laura, how have you been after this incredibly long work week? Oh, God. Um, ready for the weekend, you know, uh, to just not have to do much. Uh, <laughs> how about, yeah, how you about and me you? Both. Yeah, you've been working some late hours. Oof. Yeah. Um, it's it's still piling up. I thought I had gotten a lot of uh, work done yesterday, got through a lot, and my, my queue was clear for about an hour. Oh, a beautiful hour <laughs> where your brain could just float away into La La and, Land and then come crashing back down, huh? Exactly. Boo. I'm going to adjust my mic here and we can get started. All right. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason. I'm Laura. And welcome to Come Back a Star, a movie award mudraking. Muckraking uh, five star final. We, why don't we just sneak in the title there? Yeah. <laughs> This is episode number 31. So there we go. This is a little bit different from One Hour with You with Maurice Chevalier. It's just a little just, bit of a left turn. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. I feel like this is similar to Skippy in the sense that you go in expecting it to be one thing, which is kind of rambunctious and fun and lighthearted. And then it takes a dark turn and i wonder i was thinking about this after we watched it that i wonder if because you know i ha i have this thing and i think a lot of people do that movies in the 30s were basically um well yeah like lighthearted would easy kind of, yeah would kind of skip over some of the darker things and i wonder how much that has to do with the Hayes code like not only were mm. they censoring you know sex and swearing and all of that but like Hey, there's a depression on. People don't want to think about things. So we're just no more no more dark, realistic, gritty stuff that really gets at the root of social problems. Right. Let's right. Uh, have another Gold Diggers movie. And believe you me, I love goofy 30s musicals, except for the Maurice Chevalier ones. But I think we did lose a lot of really kind of socially conscious drama that makes the viewer uncomfortable in ways that they should be. Yeah, well, and this one is definitely definitely one of those. Um, just uh, to review what we're doing here, we are watching every Best Picture winner and nominee from 1927 onwards. And I think we should give out a small uh, trigger warning on this one in that it does involve a, a double suicide. It does, yeah. And uh, I could I could see it coming, I have to say. Mm -hmm. But it was, you know, I did not see like the dog dying in Skippy, which now that I say it after you mentioned the double suicides doesn't seem quite as crushing. But um, this I could see coming, but it was still devastating. Right. I uh, I was a little bit more gullible. I thought that, you know, not great things were going to happen to this couple, but uh, that that kind of sideswiped me there. I mean, I didn't see it right away, but. Well, we'll get into it when we when we talk about the movie. Should we just jump right in? Right. Uh, so what we're going to do now is we are going to uh, kind of review the plot and discuss the movie and kind of give our little two cents uh, as we go through it. And then after all of that, we are going to rate this movie on various categories, uh, major categories being acting, writing, cinematography, and then overall. And then we're going to give it a chance for some bonus points. And uh, once again, warning this is this is a heavy movie, Very which we heavy. were not expecting. No, we were expecting something more like front page. 
mm-hmm. uh, which was the precursor to His Gal Friday, which is a well-known screwball comedy. And this, it is not. But uh, yeah, they both involve newspapers. Both involve newspapers. And, and that's where the similarities end. And sort again, of. they get you in the beginning because you think it's going to be that way because there's the same fast talking, same like kind of like hip slang and kind of stock characters you see. But then it really gets at something. So shall we? Yes. Why don't we begin? In Marvin Leroy's 1931 five star final, we meet the cast of the tabloid paper, The Evening Gazette. The stuffy and exploitative owner Bernard Hinchcliffe, played by Oscar Apfel, his obsequious partners Robert French and R.J. Brannigan, played by Purnell Pratt and Robert Elliott, the snazzy dresser and eager paparazzo Ziggy Feinstein, played by our favorite George E. Stone. I think this is like the fourth or fifth movie we've covered. Yeah, he's been in a lot of them. And the second one we've watched with with our star. Edward G. Robinson. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think he's a little underused here, Georgie Stone. Uh, he kind of has a yeah. fun side. He's more the lightest, lighter character. He, um, his big story is like this, uh, street race that he's organizing, uh, right. which is a little awkward for us being in the Tacoma area, given what happened last week oh, right. uh, with the street racing. But, uh, again, I mean, I think they're demonstrating just how this kind of thing can happen and be encouraged. Right. Yeah. Um, We also meet aspiring yet cynical reporter, Kitty Carmody played by Ona Munson, who most audiences today would recognize as uh, the Madam Belle Watling in Gone with the Wind. Um, Uh. Yeah. I did not recognize her at all. She's really chameleon like actress, I think. Um, And we also meet uh, the secretary to the managing editor, Miss Taylor, uh, played by Elaine McMahon in her film debut. And she really makes an impression. Hers is one of she my does. favorite performances. She's very much the kind of, how would you describe her? Sort of like down to earth, tired, mm-hmm. world weary type. And, but yet you, you get that there's like this real pain in her. Oh yeah. She feels very real. Feels I, very it, real. And Unglamorous. I mean, beautiful, but very. McCann did a good job. Yeah. She did great. Um, this managing editor is Edward G. Robinson's Joseph W. Randall. Miss Taylor is depressed because although Randall has been working at real human interest stories in an effort to raise the paper's prestige, he is successfully hounded by Hinchcliffe to appeal to the lowest common denominator to raise circulation. Right. And you kind of get a picture into, um, what these different newspapers are apparently trying to do like they're having beauty contests and the street race is something that like that the paper is organizing so they can report on it right it's like they're and i mean i think the big unspoken thing over all this is the depression Mm -hmm. and i think just uh people are probably not wanting to hear about it anymore they want to think about anything else and that and you know that did did contribute to the lighter-hearted movies we see in the 30s and i think editors of papers definitely did bounce on this too like what can we talk about that isn't this which right. is which is hard because it was everything back then oh of course of course i mean it it dominated life mm-hmm. all right so the latest serial that the owner hinchcliffe insists randall investigate is in retrospective of an infamous story randall first covered 20 years ago it is the case of nancy Voorhees, a stenographer who shot and killed her boss because he backed out on his promise to marry her her pregnancy led to her acquittal, and Hinchcliffe tells Randall to find out what happened to her and, reco- and cover every detail. 
Randall agrees and engages both Carmody and a resident creep, the Reverend, quote unquote, T. Vernon Isipod, played by Boris Karloff. Yeah, um, this was, I think, oh gosh, let me look up Frankenstein really quick because I can't remember if it was right after or right before Frankenstein. Um, he does such a fantastic job. I mean, oh, he always does. Year. It's the same year, actually. Oh, really? Right. So this is right before his career really took off. I mean, he had been playing like kind of, you know, one, you know, like one note gangster types in right. movies. But yeah, I think this is his first showcase and he really nails it, I think. You know, might oh, be yeah. a little like, you know, borderline hammy sometimes, but in only the way someone like Karloff could pull off. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, so this so-called Reverend Isabod is implied to have once actually been a clergyman before his penchant for harassing women and booze lost him his position. Yeah, and I read uh, in the trivia that, you know, they were going to be more explicit with him being actually like a defrocked priest who like flat out sexually assaults women. But they decided to kind of pull back on that a bit. But it's what's there is still pretty disturbing. Oh, yeah, he's not not a likely person. Mm -mm. Uh, Randall directs Carmody to interview Voorhees' neighbors and Isopod to call upon the Voorhees in the guise of a clergyman. Which introduces us to Nancy Voorhees, played by Frances Starr, who has been married 20 years to Michael Townsend, played by H.B. Warner. And they have a daughter named Jenny, played by uh, Marion Marsh, who was uh, getting to be pretty popular around that time, who's due to marry Philip Weeks, the chivalrous son of a successful manufacturer. And he's played by Anthony Bushell, who I recognize the name. And he was our uh, kind of romantic lead in um, Disraeli, actually. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which was his film debut. Um, so he's. I, I thought he looked familiar. Yeah. And, you know, he himself, he doesn't really light the screen on fire. But you really didn't grow fond of Philip's character. He. Uh, G. G. Willikers, he swell. Yeah, he's definitely that kind of character who says things just like that. But, like, but he's endearing. He's endearing. I feel like if that's done with sincerity and you can tell the character's good, that just adds to the charm. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't surprisingly make you want to punch him. Um, so from the fast-talking, screwball atmosphere of the newspaper, we are now enmeshed in the genuine warmth and love of the Townsend family. Uh, pretty, cheerful Jenny is blissfully unaware of her mother's past or that Michael is not her biological father. Nancy privately frets to Michael what would happen if Philip and his family found out about her past, but Michael reassures her that won't happen as he lovingly embraces her. It's clear that this couple is still deeply in love and devoted to each other. And I remarked when while we were watching it that this is kind of like the first portrayal of an older couple that actually likes each other and... I don't know. They just have a very genuine, like, romantic relationship. Yeah, that like the you romance don't hasn't often died. See no. with an older couple, and uh, you know, a lot of that I think comes down to Star, but especially Warner as Michael Townsend. He especially, I think, really mm-hmm. uh, he was you know mostly known as a stage actor, so was Star, but he really brings off the fact that you could tell this man really adores his wife and is very protective of her, and. So sweet. And he's just, they're just nice people. They come off as nice people. And so, yeah, that makes, that happens next. Super fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, I mean, and again, I was completely suckered in by this movie. I, I, I followed it along the path that it was leading me on the it entire was very, time. Yeah. Very maybe good. Maybe it was it because did. I was really tired when I was watching it. <laughs> and, and my, my, 
tendency to kind of like try to predict what's going on uh, was mm. just turned off. I was I was sitting there and I was enjoying the movie, which is a testament to how good it was. You fool sitting there enjoying the movie. I never know. let never let yourself enjoy the movie. God. I know, I know. So this couple, Nancy and Michael, uh, over here, their soon-to-be son-in-law, Philip, reading an article advertising the new serial about her life, and they begin to panic. When Isopod calls, saying that he's a clergyman, he is invited over to speak privately with Nancy and Michael. They assume he works for Dr. Blevins, who is to marry Jenny and Philip, and Michael tells Nancy he's someone that they can confide in. Because, you know, he thinks he's an actual clergyman. Right. And because, uh, I mean, when he first calls, they're having a blast with Philip and Jenny. I mean, what you, what's hard to capture in just words is just you could tell right away what a close knit, fun family this is that like Philip totally feels at home with these people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when uh, Isabod calls, Michael's kind of stuck. He's like, oh, I, I don't really know why he wants to come see us, but I assume it has to do with the wedding. Right. So when they find out that the serial is happening, he's like, oh, well, if he's a clergyman, we could talk to him about this and maybe he can appeal to somebody. I don't know. Or give us some advice. Yeah. Uh, how wrong they are. They <laughs> are so wrong. <laughs> Isabod arrives and soon Michael and Nancy are confiding all, even letting him leave with Jenny's picture. It's only after he leaves that the two realize that for someone allegedly working for Dr. Blevins, he didn't know much about them, not even Jenny or Philip's names, until he ga- they gave them to him. They're horrified when they realize what they have done. Yeah, it's what the moment they do is when actually, you know, when he's leaving and Michael starts to go like, wait, but, you know, then Isabod, you know, leaves and uh, Nancy's like, well, what? what? What's wrong? And he's like, isn't it weird that he didn't know Philip's name? He didn't even know Jenny's name. And then the penny drops and they're both just like, oh, no, mm-hmm. it's just devastating because she's she's dealt with the newspapers before you felt like when she was oh, yeah. in uh, on trial. Francis Starr does a very good job of seeming like someone who's been through something mm-hmm. like she seems she's very fragile. And like, even when she's happy, she has this kind of sort of dogged look about her like she's just spent like. Like, she just does not have much left in her to fight. Mm-hmm. So uh, we then go back to the newspaper office where Miss Taylor, who, again, is Aline McMahon, uh, the secretary to uh, uh, Edward G. Robinson. Uh, she has gotten loaded at the local bar Cochran's in preparation to give Randall a piece of her mind as she's sick of women getting crucified, in her words, in order to get a good story. However, Randall brushes off her concerns, telling her he can't afford to be the good guy, as he plans to be one of the few newspaper editors to be able to retire in luxury. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Isabod finally arrives, also drunk. It's just something that these newspaper people just really love to do. And given the horrible things they make themselves do, it kind of makes sense. Oh, yeah. Randall drinks uh, quite a few times just in Boston. Quite. Yeah. I mean, it's a very Mad Men atmosphere. He gives Randall his information along with Jenny's picture. Seeing Jenny does momentarily prick at Randall's conscience, but then he's all business and prepares the photo layout, fortifying himself with a shot of whiskey. Ah, as we mentioned. Yeah. He tells Carmody to get a photographer to cover the Townsend department the next day. So, the next day, the day of their daughter's wedding. (laughs) 
Nancy and Michael are crushed to find that their worst nightmares have come true. Their pictures and their daughters are all on the front page. Yep. Luckily, Jenny and Philip are too giddy about their upcoming nuptials to read the papers, and they leave to get their marriage license. Yeah, these two, they're very much, uh, ain't nothing bad going to happen today. Yeah. Uh, very just, I mean, Marsh especially is just, you just get the feeling that she's never had a bad day in her life. She's never mm-hmm. been, she's never been anything but ecstatically happy. Oh, and yeah. her parents obviously adore her and want her to stay that way. Mm-hmm. And so they just get more and more frantic. You really do get the sense it's not about them. It's about their daughter and this wonderful, wonderful man that she's about to marry if they can just keep it together. Right, right. Um, so the the happy couple don't know, but uh, soon Philip's frigid and snobbish parents have seen the papers and they arrive at the Townsend's apartments and insist that the marriage can't happen. Michael instead kicks them out and then decides to go see Dr. Blevins to see if he can appeal to the paper before they cover the full story. After he leaves, Nancy calls the paper and is bounced back and forth from Hinchcliffe to Randall, both of whom balk at talking to her. She finally succeeds in speaking to Randall, breaking down as she pleads with him not to publish any more about her because the serial will ruin her daughter's life. Yeah, I just want to interrupt you here because I really do think it was a brilliant little montage of her just constantly on the line. The movie opens on the telephone operators who are, you know, a bunch of sassy gals, Mm -hmm. you know, chewing gum and trying to get people to where they need to be. And so they return and obviously don't give a, you know, care what's going on. And uh, Hinchcliffe and uh, Randall are, you know, taking other calls at the same time. Mm -hmm. And, but all the while, you know, she's there like in the center of it, just really trying to keep it together. But I think, you know, this kind of compounds her just sense of despair. Yeah. I mean, playing this kind of phone tag, even in the best of circumstances can drive somebody nutty. But in this situation, as she's just realizes that it's not about her, it's about the headlines and it doesn't, she's not going to make any human connection here. Right. It's, uh, it's frustrating. You're, you're getting frustrated along and it's shot really well too. Yeah. They, they do the kind of back and forth in a, in an artsy sort of way by dividing the screen up into three. Yeah. To threes, I think. And they kind of like have like sort of a dark kind of halo around her. I think that increases the more, Mm -hmm. the more that she's bounced back and forth and fobbed off. Uh, So unwilling to face his guilt, Randall brushes her off by telling her that there's nothing he can do and hangs up on her. In despair, she wanders into her bathroom and takes poison. She dies. Yeah. And it's like, I could tell at this point that it was coming, but it was still, still a shock, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's tasteful in the fact that we don't see her. We, mm-hmm. we, we never see a dead body in this, but we hear and we know what's going on. And it's just it's the worst. It's terrible. Yeah, they they made us really like these characters. Yeah. In just a few short scenes, they really accomplished accomplished that. And mm-hmm. uh, so your heart breaks for the people she leaves behind, such as Michael, who is currently speaking to Dr. Blevins and the church, who is sympathetic and says he'll do what he can. Michael hurries home to tell Nancy only to go into shock when he sees her dead. He closes the door when he hears Jenny and Philip arrive, still happy and unaware of the serial. Michael does not reveal what's happened. 
Um, and when Carmody calls on the phone to try to talk to them, he pretends it's Nancy calling from a store where she forgot money. And I do think Warner deserved an Oscar nomination for this scene alone. Yeah. I mean, it's such a realistic depiction. I mean, you know, at one point, Jenna's like, well, Dad, you're trembling. And you can actually see it. And he's got mm-hmm. that. He is so used to being like the good dad, the one who's always got a joke that he just automatically goes into that mode when right, they come right. home. And it's like he's just momentarily shut the door, not only on his wife's dead body physically, but mentally. But right. it's starting to wear at him as he knows what he's going to do, as he says he's going to join her. Um, so he tells Jenny and Philip that they'll meet the two at church after he goes to the store to pick up Nancy. He makes sure to shake Philip's hand and calls him son for the first time and then kisses his daughter. They leave, and he does join his wife in the bedroom and takes his own life as well. It's um, it's crushing. It's very crushing. We've really come to know this couple and know their love for each other. And uh, just the, knowing that soon Jenny is going to find out is kind of hangs over us. After unsuccessfully ringing the, at the door, Carmody and the photographer sneak into the apartment through the fire escape. They find Michael and Nancy's dead bodies. Although the photographer is horrified, Carmody snaps to and orders him to take pictures as she phones the paper with the news. Yeah, Carmody is an interesting character because when we first meet her, it's kind of a sexist setup where Miss Taylor implies that, of course, she'll get the jobs because she has boobs. And uh, so you think maybe she's she's someone who's kind of, you know, slept her way to the top and doesn't really know what she's doing. But, oh, she knows what she's doing. She's probably the most competent person in this, really. She stays focused. I mean, she doesn't strike me as a particularly good person. No, she's ruthless. She's very ruthless. And uh, it's a very fascinating character, really. And Munson does a very good job. Mm -hmm. The next day, their suicides are all over the paper. And a crushed Jenny is in the apartment looking out the window, haunted both by the paper boys hawking the headlines in the streets and by the presence of Philip's parents, telling her coldly that the marriage can't go on. And yeah, I mean, the parents are kind of your stock jerk characters, rich snobs. And Mm -hmm. uh, um, but, you know, it's very I mean, it's just especially chilling because they can see that this young girl and Marion Marsh is a very delicate woman who looks like a child, really. Right. And they're just no sense of compassion for her. Um, but luckily, Philip arrives and stands firm in Jenny's corner, defying his parents and telling them it doesn't matter if they disinherit him. He calls his mother the coldest and most brutal woman he's ever met, and his father strikes him. And I was really hoping that he'd punch his father back, but, you know, we don't get what we want all the time. <laughs> no, not all the time. Philip, you're just you're too much of a mensch. Come on. <laughs> they leave and Philip embraces Jenny. However, she tells him she wants to be alone, and although reluctant, he does step outside to speak to the Undertaker. As Jenny overhears the Undertaker dryly listing the facts about the deaths, like she hears him list like her mother's hair color, mother's age, and there's, you know, no emotion in his voice because he's done this a million times. Mm -hmm. And it's just like this kind of soundtrack as she's trying to process everything that's happened, and it just makes her snap. She's overtaken by anger and sorrow and steals a gun from her parents' bedroom. And I was so scared that meant, oh, God, now she's going to do the same thing as her parents. Right. I thought so, too. But instead, and I think, you know, they want us to think that. But instead, she leaves the apartment without Philip knowing. And then we kind of know what she's planning to do. Uh, Meanwhile, at the bar, a (laughs) ridden uh, Randall is getting drunk and asking the barkeep if he's ever killed a man or a woman. 
Ms. Taylor comes in and they discuss the situation. And Taylor sees that Randall is sick with self-loathing. She tells him a police inspector is waiting for him at the office and he calls the night desk and orders them to drop the story. Yeah, there's like this young clerk throughout and I couldn't find his character name or the actor's name of the credits um, who basically twice says, oh, Miss Taylor, you're in love with the boss, aren't you? And she doesn't really deny it, but she doesn't really confirm it. And Mm -hmm. you don't. And, you know, while they're in this bar. Randall says something like, well, have I ever tried to make love to you? Like kind of trying to like argue that he's a decent person who's never taken advantage of her. And she doesn't give him much. So it's hard to tell, like, mm-hmm. you know, is she in love with him or is she just like know that he's capable of being a better person? And so it hurts that he doesn't live up to it. I mean, I think she is, but she also is not like dippy. No, is she's, the thing. she's just that's just not her character. Like he calls her like a real human being. Which is, I you get the impression that for Randall, that is a very well-earned compliment. Mm-hmm. So back at the office, uh, Hinchcliffe is likewise rattled by the suicides. But he's easily swayed by French and Brannigan, who point out that circulation is soaring. So they try to sway Randall by bringing in Isabod, who proposes the paper offer Jenny $1,200 for the rights to Nancy's story. Infuriated, Randall refuses. Then Miss Taylor announces that Jenny is here to see them. And everyone just kind of freezes. Everyone except Randall tries to come up with excuses not to see her. But he forces Hinchcliffe and Isabod to stay. Jenny comes in and demands of each man why they killed her mother. Hinchcliffe and Isabod try soothing her with noncommittal answers. But Randall can take no more and he steps up and says they killed her for circulation. In hysterics, Jenny upbraids them for their dirty journalism and threatens to shoot them. However, Philip then bursts in and stops her and tells the men in disgust that there will be no more murder today. However, at the doorway, he does point the gun at them and says if they ever mention his wife's name in the paper again, he will indeed kill them. He then drops the gun in the trash can and escorts his weeping bride out of the office. And boy, are we glad that Jenny has someone like him in his her in her corner. Yeah. It's a uh, it's very sweet and also just kind of not. I wasn't necessarily expecting that from his character in the beginning, since he was such a kind of like goofy guy, golly. Yep. Uh, sort of character. And uh, yeah, he steps up to the plate. Randall steps up to the plate as well, uh, calling out everything as it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, it the movie restores. A shred of faith in humanity. And I think, At the very end. you know, I mean, as tragic as the deaths were, I think it's a testament to Michael and Nancy that we do see this humanity in these characters, like especially Philip. I mean, looking at his upbringing, it must have coming into the uh, Townsend family must have felt so refreshing and to feel so loved that maybe, you know, we don't get to explore this that much in the movie, but maybe that makes him a better person and makes him the kind of guy who would stand up for Jenny. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, I'm sure Randall has um, Nancy's frantic voice from the telephone in his head. So I think it's like, you know, Nancy, I think, considered herself probably a weak woman. But I think the her love for her daughter and the love she and Michael had for each other are inspiring enough that they really kind of. They kind of just help bring everybody together in the Mm -hmm. right ways in the end. Uh, So 
As we we close out, Randall finally resigns, kicking Hinchcliffe out of his office and breaking the glass above his door in his fury. His fury. His righteous fury. And breaking the glass above Hinchcliffe's door, right? Yeah. His boss. I think, yep. Yep, and Hinchcliffe is just kind of standing there slack-jawed. Yeah. Uh, Miss Taylor is thrilled and leaves with him, uncaring that the phone is ringing. We part on the shot of the Evening Gazette's issue about the suicide victim's burial getting swept away down the gutter full of mud and grime. Symbolism. little heavy-handed, but it gets the point. That You know, if I did have one quibble with the movie, it does get a little heavy-handed. Uh, speaking of hands, um, there are two scenes of uh, Randall washing his hands. One, in the first scene, he is just lathering on the soap. And, you know, you wonder, will these hands ever be clean again? And then in the second, which is more towards the end, when he starts to have his moral awakening, he finally, you know, finishes washing his hands. And so he's kind of washed his hands of the whole business, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I I was so out of it that I didn't even pick up on that until you just <laughs> noticed it. Like, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, that was really blatant. Yeah. So, I mean, and, you know, some of his lines at the end where he's, you know, denouncing the paper are probably a little too preachy on the nose. But, um, you know, that's uh, like I've said again and again, if a movie does that kind of thing, well, they earn it, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I think this was this is quite the remarkable flick. I would agree. Uh, just to get into some trivia, it pissed off a lot of newspaper people. Uh, you don't say. No. Uh, most famous of whom, of course, is William Randolph Hearst, who, uh, as we know from 1942, or was it 1941? Dad will kill me. Uh, seeing uh, Citizen Kane, uh, he he uh, smeared that movie in his papers, and he did to this one, too. Um, and uh, lots of journalists decried it as, you know, painting a you know, a terrible portrait of journalism. And I'm like, well, not all journalism. Like Randall has been trying to write good things, Mm -hmm. but the obsession with circulation makes them appeal to, you know, the crasser stories. So yeah, the lowest common denominator. And yeah. And it's just like, well, so stop saying it's a blanket condemnation of journalism, but instead like maybe look at it and go, oh, so yeah, maybe we shouldn't do that. Yeah. Like maybe we shouldn't do it that way. But uh, as usual, people like to miss the point when it's inconvenient to them. Yeah. And also, like we were discussing uh, off off the air, um, <laughs> it it really was like a case of uh, I, I think Hearst doth protest too much. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Once you start like railing against a pay like so, like a movie so much that you convince everyone to and on your payroll to to smear it, it's like. What are you so scared of there, Randy? Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's a thing. Don't do that. Don't do that. Maybe just be better. Yeah. There's always Maybe the have a shred to of dignity. Better. You shred of dignity and human decency would probably take you far, friends. Probably take you far. Okay, so shall we write this uh right? Rates. Let's this, rate, uh, <laughs> let's let's write the wrongs and rate the rights. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So our first category is acting. How good was the acting? Oh my. Um you know, I mean I have to say, like Francis Starr and Anthony Bushel, at first I thought they were a little colorless, but they really grew on me. Mm-hmm. Um and the Elaine McMahon. Uh, Edward G. Robinson, of course, 
were just fantastic. So I think I'll give it, I think I'll give it a nine. A nine? Yeah. I mean, Warner too. He, I just want to definitely give extra props to. I mean, the scene where he finds Nancy and tries to put on a good face to his daughter and son-in-law when he knows he's going to do the same thing Mm -hmm. is just really heartbreaking and terrifying to watch, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I am going to match your nine. Okay. Um, uh, I can't really think of any performance that was like bad and mm-hmm. the parts that were like maybe a little bit hammy. Um, like Karloff's whole character. Like yeah. Karloff's whole character. <laughs> um, he, it wasn't bad. It didn't, no. it didn't, it didn't make me like, you know, puke in my mouth or anything no. like that. It was just kind of like, well, that's a little bit over the top. It's a little bit over the top, but at the same time, if you're good enough, you know how to rein it in just that much so that it doesn't go to mm-hmm. an embarrassing territory. I mean, and that is the character. You are meant to loathe him. So Yeah, yeah. He does a very good job at that. The only thing is I do, I do not find him convincing as like a good clergyman like he's supposed to. Like if I were Michael and Nancy Townsend and Boris Karloff walked in pretending to be a clergyman, I'd be like, get out, get out. But, uh, yeah. And also you, you can't, you can't see Boris Karloff and not think of Frankenstein's creature. <laughs> scoop. Scoop yeah. for the paper. Yeah. 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 Scoop. You're about to do the monster match. <laughs> This is, is exactly what I kept expecting him to say. It's hard sometimes with Karloff because you hear him and go, hey, that's a good Karloff imitation. <laughs> <laughs> I love him dearly. Uh, let's see. So our next category is the writing. I'll give it a point less than the acting, I guess, just because of the kind of heavy handedness. I'll give mm-hmm, it an eight mm-hmm. because otherwise it does really surprise you in good ways in its tonal shift, I think, once we meet the Townsends. Yeah, I think it's exactly, yeah, I'm going to match your eight and for exactly the same reasons. I mean, it's good, but at the same time, it does kind of, especially towards the end, it's kind of like, this is the point. This is the point. This is the point. You and let me underline it a few times for you. Circulation, circulation. That's all you care about. And it's like, it, and that's why the acting gets the higher mark for me because you, it wouldn't have worked probably without like mm-hmm. stellar performances. So. Yeah, I would agree. Um, cinematography. I'm going to give that a 10. I thought it was fantastic. There were some great shots. I am. T- there's this one shot that is beautifully filmed, obviously, but I do want to take a point of because it's so weird. This weird choice to like shoot Georgie Stone as he's leaning back in his chair and it's right between his legs. I'm like, why are you doing that? But other just sitting there mansplaining. Just and, you- <laughs> and decided to put the camera right there. I mean, there are the cojones and his character, I guess, is all about the cojones. Um, but no, there were beautiful shots, like we mentioned in the montage, but just little casual like things like I think montages like in the newspaper, you know, because there are a bunch of this movie was so packed full of things happening Mm -hmm. that I really struggled writing this script. And I do give much kudos to Wikipedia for having a very well-written summary that I frankly reworded a bunch from. But um, so there's a lot of scenes we could didn't cover of like uh, going on at the newspaper headquarters and Mm -hmm. like in the printing press and everything, like very fast paced, very clearly shot and just very well done. So I'm giving it a 10. Yeah. I'm especially like, I would agree, especially that, um, that scene where she's trying to get a hold of them with mm-hmm. the phones and the shot of the um 
of the telephone operator through the telephone wires. Yes, yes, it's brilliant. Yeah, just kind of caught in this web. Noir before noir. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. I'm I'm also going to give it a 10. I thought it was stellar and there wasn't anything that really uh, stuck out to me as bad. No, no. And I think, you know, again, we got a bit of a better print than in some earlier movies so that might have contributed. It seemed like it looked less faded than other movies we've seen, like the colors as in the black and white seemed a little crisper. Right. But right. a lot of that might come down to just very expert cinematography, too. So mm-hmm, I'm only to give mm-hmm. them that benefit of the doubt. And our last category overall, how well do the acting, writing and cinematography come together to make an overall product? I'm going to give it another nine. Another nine. Yeah. I mean, very impactful. Again, wish it hadn't been quite so heavy handed sometimes, but that is just a very small quibble. Wow. So we have matched, I think, on every single thing because I am going to give it a nine as well. All right. And um, and. Such a good example of how versatile Robinson could be. It's like hard to believe this is like the same man as Rico because they're such different characters. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's still kind of like that that rough around the edges sort of kind of character. Blah, but... blah, blah, scene, blah, 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 scene, yeah, but like in such a different way. And you can totally and you just know you buy it. You like he just really inhabits his characters. It's great to see. Right, right. OK, but now we have a chance for some bonus points. They have a 72 Ooh-hoo-hoo. going into it, which um, just before any bonus points, they are already kind of like neck and neck with East Lynn overall. <laughs> and just looking back over the pages and seeing like what what they compare to um, almost. Let's see. East Lynn Love Parade, they're in the 70s. And this movie has 72 going into the bonus rounds. Yeah, I have a, the, this movie is earning in its points. Uh, I think so. Yeah. So costumes and set is our first chance for bonus points. I'll give them. I think a three. Um, and the majority of those points goes to uh, Georgie Stone's pinstripe, pinstripe suit and hat. That, that, that was just the snazziest combo I've ever seen. Otherwise, I can't say the costumes really stood out much. I mean, the sets were very good. Mm-hmm. Although, again, I think so much of it comes down to the really expert cinematography. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the. Um, I think. Hmm. I'm going to give it a four because I do just like those clothes, which I think, I again, it's not fair. <laughs> We're basically congratulating the 30s on having nice clothes. You know, on being the 30s when it comes to that. But they did it good. And um, I'm I'm taking off the point, I'm going to say, for the very pristine apartment that that the, uh, I forgot their names already. Townsend's. Townsend's have. Yeah, that is a little too. It's almost a little stagey there, but yeah. But, you know, it it functions. It does. It, It works. Um, so next category for bonus points would be boldness. Five. Five? Yeah. I think it takes some risks. I think it does. I think it does. I think it was a real gut punch probably to audiences back then. And I think it probably did, unfortunately, have the sad side effect of the Hays Code. Say, no, no, like serious, actual real world ramifications. We don't want it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we mentioned that it was a little bit heavy handed, but 
I feel like people didn't want to hear that at that point. Mm-mm. You know, they Mm-mm. didn't want to hear that, like, you're basically reading muck and people are getting hurt because of it. Ordinary people. Well, it's like, I mean, I think it's a lot of how, like, people have felt the past four years in that, like, like, dang it, why can't I have one thing I can just enjoy mindlessly without feeling bad about it? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. people just really don't like having that, like, laid bare in front of yeah. them. So I bet this made a lot of people uncomfortable. Yeah, for sure. I'm also going to give it a five. So double fives for okay. boldness. Um, next up, we have Legacy. So what? Citizen Kane, obviously. Yeah, I think. I think was influenced by this at least a little bit. I mean, it was the blueprint. I mean, Hearst certainly thought so. Um, so, yeah, I might have to give it a five. I mean, I it's hard to like say that about a movie that I actually hadn't heard of. Mm-hmm. before but i can't help but think it really did i think it had a legacy of maybe uh being too much for audiences at the time so like the Hayes code and writers maybe adjusted mm-hmm. things but that is you know a, a kind of legacy so five I, for me. yeah and i would say it probably influenced uh the newspaper movies the serious ones yeah the serious ones yeah uh, it was remade a few times i noticed uh once with oh, okay. humphrey bogart in 36 i guess we should check that out at some point it's only a, a couple years later yeah yeah they're really into like making remakes like right after the, the first movie in this era hey for some it reason. worked once let's make it work again yeah it's kind of like spider-man now oh god right <laughs> speaking of grippy newspaper dramas <laughs> uh yeah i'm also gonna give it a five for legacy um what if that little clerk guy who appears throughout is like the peter parker secret spider-man of that universe oh i like that i like that he was a weird looking guy he was a weird looking guy it would be hilarious to have like a spider-man movie without spider-man in it that much it's just about the heart-wrenching drama of uh working for the paper working for the just every once in a while in the back background you see him swinging around on his web saving somebody but it's not what it's really about i'd like that i'd watch that yeah absolutely uh so our next category is longevity how well does this movie stand up over time i'm gonna say five i'm gonna say five yeah it's um it's gripping. I mean, it kind of has something for everybody. The people who love the kind of fast talking uh, slang um, jargon of the time uh, and the sassy dames and all that will find lots in it to love. Uh, if you love the creepy and macabre, there's the walking macabre creep, Boris Karloff. And for heart wrenching drama, you got the Townsends. So yeah, it's, a, it's a good way of. Good observation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I, I'm glad you thought of putting the trigger warning at the beginning because it would be upsetting to a lot of audiences who didn't know what was what was coming. Right, right. Um. So, in our last chance for bonus points, last chance is technical category. I'm gonna give it a five, man, because I think they came up with some really unique shots. Mm-hmm. Um, the sound was great. I think they did something with the uh, telephone operators' voices where they were overlapping, but it wasn't obnoxious or badly yeah. done. I got to find the actress who, you know, has that perfect Harley Quinn voice. <laughs> the uh, telephone operator. Yeah, she, she was great. She was great. She was the best character. And we like never even knew. even the kind of like side characters like we've we've talked about the office boy and mm-hmm. and this operator like. They were great, too. Everyone was given their top game in this. This is a very top shelf movie. 
This is going to be the one place where I'm really going to differ from you. I'm going to give it a three for technical. You son of a bitch. Just because I felt like there wasn't that much of a chance for I, technical stuff. Yes. I mean, the shots were were fantastic. They were. I, I'm giving but it. I'm giving it three points yeah. that uh, that you know they had some do some some setup there, but um, yeah, I'm giving them three points, which still puts them at. Let's see, calculating this all up. Looks like 117. Wow. Which puts it one point ahead of Blue Angel, two points ahead of Public Enemy. Wow. Uh, a few points behind Little Caesar. Okay. But uh, n- yeah. Yeah. It did a good job on points. It Yeah. I mean, like I said, top shelf movie. It earned every point, I think. Mm-hmm. So, and our last question is, are we going to nominate it for our own very special Notsker Award, a movie award podcast movie award? Yes. Yes, I I would agree. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And and for once, I don't feel like I'm doing it just because we had a Chevalier movie beforehand and I'm sick to death of it. No, yeah, yeah. I feel like that, no, that this, even if we had just watched Citizen Kane, I still feel like this would have been had the same impact. I do strongly recommend it if you can emotionally handle it. It's Yeah, yeah, yeah. It I, is heavy. It is heavy. And again, I mean, I think it's because we have this preconceived notion of what a 30s movie is that it really took me by surprise. I just and I've, you know, I've always loved 30s movies, so you think I'd know they were capable of this, but so much of the 30s was taken up by the Hays Code where I just don't think mm-hmm. you could really do this as easily. No, no, I don't I don't think you could. No. no nothing nothing difficult. <laughs> no, God no. So yeah, I mean this has gotten me jazzed, you know. I have to say the last couple of Chevalier ones we did, and uh I mean I like Shanghai Express too, but I was just kinda like ho hum about the ones mm-hmm. we've done so far. And this this made me sit up. This kind of shook me out of my complacency. Yeah, it is the first movie of this uh, Oscar season that we are going to give an Oscar nom to. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, on the fourth one. <laughs> on the fourth one. Um, Good. I'm glad we're being picky because uh, yeah. it's obvious that the with that uh, movies were capable of being this good at this point. Oh, yeah. So we shouldn't be giving the benefit of the doubt to anything that doesn't reach this caliber, in my opinion. Yep, that's good. We're 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 being harsh. We're being harsh. But we're fair. Harsh but fair. See, we're not we're not concerned with circulation anymore. We just want to do the right thing. <laughs> All right, everyone. I think that's the episode. I believe so. Um, there's so much here. It's such a dense movie mm-hmm. that there's so much we didn't cover. So I do strongly recommend checking it out. Uh, there's so many little touches that are just genius that uh, we just didn't have time to go over. Um, like I, I should have talked about how charmed I was by uh, Oscar Apfel's performance as Hinch- Hinchcliffe because he was. Oh yeah. Because he was such kind of a blah guy, and yet he had control over this empire. You looking at him and hearing him, you wouldn't think he'd have the power to destroy lives. And he doesn't think he has the power to destroy lives, but he does. And so I think it was a really interesting portrayal. So clueless. Yeah, you'd you'd think he'd be like a like a Charles Foster Kane kind of imposing character. But, but he's, he's kind of a buffoon. He's a buffoon. He's an absolute buffoon. And I think that is kind of the more correct portrayal 
Mm-hmm. Like we got a lot. Stop treating these people like they're uh, unreachable um, mogul monsters. It's like, no, they're ordinary men who just aren't trying hard enough to do the right thing. Yeah, and we need to call just them completely out. amoral monsters. Amoral indeed. So, nope. yeah. Five nope. star final. Five star final. Five stars. Five stars for me. That's yeah. that's the final score. And that's the final truth. That's the final truth. Stop bringing in Pee Wee Gaskins. My God, this is not the time or place. <laughs> All right, everyone. <laughs> uh, this has been Come Back a Star. You can find us at Come Back a Star on Twitter or on email. You can email us at Come Back a Star Podcast at gmail.com. Um, you can write a review for us on the iTunes. Yeah, do if it. If you'd care to do so, that Please. would be really nice. We'd like We'd to love hear. It. I'd like to hear back from you guys. And if you've enjoyed this, um, please uh, listen to our other episodes. If you haven't, we're, we're building. Listen. We're on number 31. 31. Wow. Old enough to rent a car and everything. And that's technically 32 because we had an episode zero. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which always confuses me when I look at the catalog. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a little. <laughs> but, uh, yep. Uh if you've also, if you've enjoyed this, uh, share it with your friends, please. Um, we, we'd love to just get all, we want to share this with everybody. We want to share this exploration of movie history. Don't be, don't get too obsessed with circulation, Jason. It'll lead you down a dark path. I know. I know. Always trying to explore. I'll rein it in. Rein it in. And, uh, uh, let's focus on real human interest stories like, um. Uh, that that kid Skippy I hear is uh, uh, he's going places. He's going places. Speaking of, he's going to be in our next movie. He is more Jackie Cooper in our future. I'm not. I'm not complaining. All right. Uh, so I'm going to turn off the projector, draw the curtains, and sign off. Good night, folks. 